0: Oh, and Dozy Dots and Little Lambsy Divey, a kiddly divey too wouldn't you? Oh, nursy dots and dosy doats and little lambsy divey, a kiddly divey too wouldn't you? Now if the words sound queer and funny to your ear, a little bit jumble and jivey, say mares eat oats and does eat oats, and little lambsy dive. Oh, maresy dots and dozzy dots and little lambsy ivy. A kiddly divey too, wouldn't you? A kiddly divey too, wouldn't you? A kiddly divey too, wouldn't you? I'm back. Back and ready.
1: All right, everybody. We are back and we are ready. This is Wrapped in Podcast. I am J.R. Parker. I'm joined again by T. Kyle King. How are you doing, Kyle?
2: Uh, I'm well, and I'm holding in my hand a small box of chocolate bunnies.
1: Excellent. And, you know, it sounds like there are birds singing in the air.
2: Oh, is that right? Um, Okay, well, good.
1: (laughs) And we are now joined this week by Ken Walzak, proud son of Ohio, who uh, will be joining us this week and hopefully in future weeks. Ken, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your connection to Twin Peaks?
3: Thanks, JR. And hi, I'm happy to be here. Uh, I'm here with my cup of Good Morning America in uh, my apartment where I estimate everything, furniture included, costs uh, about $27,000. So um, my, uh, my connection to Twin Peaks goes all the way back to uh, high school when I discovered the show through tapes at my local Hollywood video, which was a delightful chain where you could get cult classics for $1.50 for a five-day rental, and we would scour it every week for the tapes that were in SP format instead of EP format, uh, because the EP tapes were obviously lower quality. And I became obsessed with David Lynch pretty quickly. I think through Blue Velvet I became obsessed with Lynch, and then I found um, Twin Peaks and his other stuff. I saw Lost Highway uh, the night that it came out when I was in college, and it was a transformative experience, I think. And I ended up doing one of my college thesis papers on Lost Highway. So I've been very deeply involved with, uh, with Lynch ever since.
1: Cool. I'd love to hear about that thesis paper. You're now, we're two weeks uh, with two different contributors having... Uh, written, uh, a published, or academic article related to Twin Peaks. So tell us all about your thesis.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's not nearly as cool as being published in uh, Wrapped in Plastic, I should say. I'm insanely jealous of that particular credit on, on Kyle's resume. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the main thing that my college was happy about, about the Lynch thesis, was that I wrote it all in one color. I had done this like senior thesis thing where I wrote in a lot of different colors of ink because I thought it would be cool to have the different voices in my thesis in different colors, which I think drove people batty. So uh, the, the Lynch one was in uh, was in black. Print exclusively, so that made people happy. Um, I think I think the major uh, thesis of it was that Lost Highway is the apotheosis of the Lynch experience because it only sets out clues that can lead nowhere. Right. So the you know, no matter how many times you watch Lost Highway and how many different ways you try to piece together its central mystery or even, I guess, like the peripheral mysteries, you're always going to come one step shy of full resolution, which is why I think it's better than like Mulholland Drive, for example, which wasn't out at the time, obviously. But um, I think that something like Mulholland Drive, there, there is a theory that explains it. Right. You can you can piece it together in a logically coherent, chronological sort of way. I don't think you can do that with Lost Highway, which I actually think is, is the idea and the plan. And I, uh, I think it's a it's a brilliant movie and also showing a lot now on the movie channel because Showtime owns that property and is promoting everything lynching.
1: So how does your thesis apply to the straight story? <laughs>
3: Well, <laughs> that's a, it's a very fine question, and one I've, uh, I've never been asked. I guess that came out when I was either working on the thesis or just after. Uh, it's it's a beautiful, elegiac sort of a movie that I like a lot, uh, but it's certainly a lot more straightforward.
1: Um, well, since I think all of us have been watching it recently, the first thing we're going to do, having been now introduced to Ken, is discuss Firewalk with me with a little bit more detail than Kyle and I did last week all known that apparently Firewalk with me and its sort of content is supposed to weigh very heavily here in season three coming up. You know, Ken since I think you started just finished watching it at what 3 30 a.m uh, this morning why don't we let you go ahead and begin
3: great sure yeah i think i finished my most recent rewatch of the movie like eight hours ago and uh, it was the first time i'd seen it in more than a decade probably I-, I think it's interesting to start maybe with how it departs from the tv show and bulk of the of the series obviously there is some different creative personnel right angles uh, co-wrote it with with lynch and frost was not involved and 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 I'd I'd forgotten that the opening sequence, right, the the title card is blue television static and the uh, opening credit sequence goes on for quite a while. And then there's an axe right through a TV, which seems like to me a statement of intent that this is not going to be a TV show. (laughs) Right. And I was uh, I was pulling up an, a copy of Lynch on Lynch, the sort of film nerd series of interviews that they published some years ago and, and recently revised. And the t- Twin Peaks chapter begins with a point about how little Lynch liked television going into Twin Peaks. He was angry about how bad the image and sound quality were and how hard it was to deal with interruptions by commercials, which he called dream breakers. So uh, it's interesting. To look at that in the context of the show returning and the movie being such a departure from the way the TV series presents itself, Uh, are am I crazy, or did you have similar thoughts?
2: Yeah, I I think uh, I think I'm right in line with you there, Ken, because you you definitely had that idea and said we're going to film this and then we're going to break it up into episodes. It wasn't written episodically; it was written as a whole piece. Uh, that he was then going to slice up in whatever way it needed to be sliced up. And he wasn't really concerned with how many episodes it would make. And in fact, at one point, the deal almost fell apart over that uh, because Lynch said they're not willing to give me enough money to, to film this the way I think it needs to be done, so I'm out. And as it started to fall apart, what came out was it wasn't that anybody didn't want to give him the money, it's that they typically buy these series in particular installments. You're going to give us a nine episode or a 13 episode or ever how many episodes season, and we're going to pay you commensurately. And when he just came in and said, I don't know how long it's going to be. It may be 12, it may be 15, it may be 30. I don't know. We're going to film this thing and it's going to work out how it works out. And when he finally got to somebody high enough up to know David knows what he's doing and he knows how to divide this money up. So just pay the man and let him figure it out. I mean, that right there, tells you that he didn't go into this saying, I'm going to produce X number of episodes. He went into it saying, it's going to take as long as it takes, and whatever mood strikes me, strikes me, and it'll work out like it works out, which I think is wonderful, because he's no longer constrained by what ABC put him through 25 years ago, and saying, you've got to produce this many episodes, and at this point, we need to know who killed Laura Palmer.
3: Yeah, now he's got a widescreen frame to work in, and vastly improved uh, audio and video resolution capabilities, and he doesn't have to deal with uh, dream breakers, right? Because he's on Showtime, right. and he can do it commercial free. The the fear of interruptions, or the hatred, I guess, of interruptions, is really like a, a an day fixe with him, right? Like, I remember being angry over the years that he refused to put chapter stops in his DVDs, right? Which doesn't necessarily matter to me much now, but as like a film student who was trying to write about this stuff, and couldn't just skip to a specific chapter on the DVD, because he hates the interruptions so much. It was remarkable, right? So, uh, it's, it's kind of great that TV has advanced to a point where it can meet his particular mute, I guess.
2: Yeah, and and in a way uh, he helped bring that about I mean twin Peaks had such a profound influence on how television occurred and of course as we've seen more and more channels producing television programs that are willing to do a shorter higher quality season and not be fixated on the idea that you got to start in september you got to end in may you got to do something for sweeps week you got to have a Christmas episode and then a break heading into January they don't care about any of that no, there is no TV season as such anymore so it's it's really rewarding that after he kind of shook up the conventions of television, television's finally caught up to where he can come back and do it right.
3: Yeah, and Showtime is keen to capitalize on that legacy too, right? They're running these trailers now for the new series that say before men were mad, before bad was broken, right? <laughs> in, the, in the iconic uh, font, which mostly have the effect of re- reminding me how much I miss the font, the Twin Peaks font. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah, sure, sure.
3: Uh, which, by the way, they apparently used the exact same font for Firewalk with Me, but bold faced and italicized it and turned it white, which uh, sort of freaked me out.
1: Yeah. So you've got a, a, a couple of things on your list to look for in season three that we see in Firewalk with Me, Ken. The first thing you've put on your list is the long nosed demon tuxedo kid slash monkey. And, and I think we. Do you think we're gonna hear the black dog walks at night?
3: Yeah, that's that's a great question, and I also I don't know if these are the same entity. I don't know if these are several versions of of one entity. If these are different entities, the kid obviously wears a little long nose mask at various points, uh, which suggests that he is akin to the long nose demon, which is played by not the kid at other points and so uh i just wanted to make sort of a list of images and impressions that really linger from especially the other place scenes in uh in fire walk with me just to see if we thought they they might crop up again going into season three
1: well as i recall the kid is played by david lynch's son in the series and then a different actor in the movie
2: right and and very clearly resembles Lynch too. I mean, he looks like a David, a, a little David Lynch, and and that just adds to the creep factor from from my standpoint.
3: Or a tiny Gordon Cole in world. Right, right, exactly.
1: He is introduced as the grandson in the series.
3: Yeah, the grandson of Mrs. Chalfont, right?
1: Slash Fontaine. Right, and so that actually brings up kind of what I think. Here, here's my I hate to say it, my hot take. We've got a show that's 25 years later, and what we're going to talk about, you know, the, the, all the actors that are coming back, and then the rather enormous list of cast members that are going to be new to this series, which is almost disorienting to think about. I do believe that one of the central themes of Twin Peaks that started to develop, and I think to some extent it's more developed in the outside properties like The Secret History and, and in, you know, even the Access Guide to Twin Peaks. The idea of there's sort of an intergenerational recycling of uh, brutality and betrayal. And this goes, uh, you know, the, the history of the Packard family and the Martell family. There are two different versions of it. One is in the secret history, one is in uh, the access guide, where these two families are sort of battling for control over having rival mills, you know, in the same area, in the same lake with, you know, kind of questionable business practices. Just like we saw play out in that family saga, in season one and season two, there's a history of you know the Horn family burning down the rival supply company when they arrived in Twin Peaks in the 1800s, and, and we see that play out in between the Horn family and the Hayward family. You've got generations of secrets and lies and betrayal. Man who had the vacation home next to young little Leland Palmer's house. His name was Robertson. Right. And of course, we know Bob. Bob is the son of Robert. We've got a grandson of the Fontaines and we don't really know how that's gonna play out. I really think that what we're gonna see in season three is these characters that you are really familiar with with a whole new crop of youngins who are going to be up to no good. That, that's what I think we're gonna see, uh, up to no good or, or, or a lot of good, just as we saw in the original series. Um, that you know, the, the sort of notion of a uh, multi-family Orestia playing out in Eastern Washington.
3: So, like a DeGrassi, the next generation for Twin Peaks—is that what you're what you're proposing? What we're going to see?
1: <laughs> I guess. I guess you know I'm not familiar, and I don't know what the connection of the next generation to the previous generations was. in in the Degrassi saga.
3: It's very similar, actually. It's a it's a continuity of pain and suffering. Um, I like the way that uh, your your thought there makes me think about the other place scenes in Fire Walk With Me and like the creamed corn slash Garmon Bosia, like, the idea that pain and suffering is this currency in the other place. Uh, I, I can see that there... To me, what you're saying about the plot threads is sort of the physical... Component of the emotional thing that's happening in the other place scenes. So that Lynch is trying to explore this theme down through the generations, and I completely agree with what you're saying, and therefore I don't think it's a hot take. Um, But the way that he's exploring (laughs) this theme down through uh, generations of real people, at the same time he's showing like an emotional, supernatural kind of a backdrop to it, where the the emotions themselves are turned into a physical entity, into a currency that these demons and and, uh, beings who have passed on from our realm. Exchange. Well, it's
1: interesting, though, because it's it's much easier to identify the motivations of characters like Bob or the arm. But then, you know, what about Philip Gerard or Mike? Does he really want the Garmin Bosia or is he trying to prevent it? What does he mean when he tells Leland, you stole my corn, uh, that he had canned? Was he trying to preserve the Garmin Bosia so more wouldn't spill out? And then what are the motivations of the giant? Or the angel, they're clearly not interested in consuming pain and suffering. I would think uh, maybe they're interested in removing it. Yeah, I, I really wish that we had more insight into the White Lodge, uh, which has been you know more or less completely occult uh, as far as we've seen it so far.
2: Well, and, and when you mention intergenerational, and, and I, I really don't plan to mention the Sound and the Fury every single week of this podcast, but it, but it seems really relevant to me when you talk about the horns, you know, because we saw, obviously, in the Sound and the Fury with the Compson family, and we saw that degeneration and the the moral decay passing down through the generations, and obviously you think of, of Ben Horn, who not at all coincidentally uh, had to reenact the Civil War uh, with the South winning this time, and so he very much put himself in that Compson mindset, and of course has a son who suffers from some of the same uh, mental health issues as, uh, as Benji Compson did, but when you look at the future generations uh, who's there to carry these generations on? I mean, I guess Audrey could have gotten married and could have, have children, but Johnny Horn isn't going to have kids. Obviously, Leland Palmer doesn't have any grandchildren, at least none that we know about, although now that I say that, that wouldn't be the craziest thing in the world. But, you know, we don't have Donna Hayward on board. We don't have either Donna Hayward on board. So are there going to be uh, little Haywards running around? You know, what? what other... Members of these families are going to be there to carry these lineages down, and and hopefully uh, carry down the the sort of good and evil conflict that's fundamentally going on in the woods.
1: I think it's up to Shelley and Bobby. They're just going to have to make a lot of babies,
2: <laughs> right? Or you never know. You know, Gordon and Shelley may have wound up together. You know, they did have kind of a thing there. That's true. You know, front three quarter view of two adults sharing a tender moment and all that. <laughs>
3: Yeah, Bobby and Shelly's do- weird, doomed, not very bright offspring uh, would not be a particularly good focus for season three, I fear. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they don't have to be lineal descendants though, right? That, that po- point wouldn't have to be literal. There's sort of a Battlestar Galactica, all of this has happened before and all of this will happen again element to the, the way that human civilization progresses down through the years that uh, could be explored here without them having to be literally the same family. So obviously it was nice to be able to do that in Secret History of Twin Peaks, but it's easier when you're working backwards. Are you talking about that little right. girl that got murdered? <laughs> Could you just dub in that old man saying that every four minutes or so for the remainder of the podcast? Yeah, sure. that, that would be great. That would be fantastic. Are you talking about that little
2: girl that got <laughs> murdered?
3: So Chris Isaac makes him spill the coffee on himself on purpose, right? He's he's hazing right. Kiefer Sutherland in that scene, right? Yes, absolutely. 100%. Yeah.
1: Clearly, clearly. I mean – right. Chet chat is like Dale, but instead of being like quirky, he's cool.
2: But that's the whole essence of Deer Meadow is it's, is it's all the inverted version of Twin Peaks. You've got the horrible relationship <laughs> between the federal agents and the sheriff's department. You know, everything is just... If everything is off in Twin Peaks, everything is even more off in Deer Meadow if such a thing it's is possible. It's sort of amazing to me how much, uh,
3: I agree with everything you just said by the way, and it's sort of amazing to me how much more professional the whole movie seems to become after the core cast arrives, after like minute 27 or 28 that it just all the acting seems to be a lot more um, high quality and smooth, like these people have been acting with each other for some time and they understand how Lynch directs and it's it just seems like a, a much more professional enterprise than it does when Chris Isaac and uh, Kiefer Sutherland are around that that whole first half hour of Firewalk with me has like a kind of a quality to it that I associate with, for example, Inland Empire. Like, Inland Empire is like uh, Lynch doing Spring Breakers. You know, it's like a Harmony Kareen uh, meets uh, low-budget porn sort of an aesthetic. And uh, I dig it. I think that it's fantastic. But I was surprised to see it all the way back in in, Fire Walk with me when he didn't have the um, constraints of TV or Frost or whomever else uh, keeps him you know, mainstream? I'm not sure what the right adjective yeah, is. Yeah,
1: no, I, I think that, well, you know, one of the theories is that the whole first section of the movie is Dale Cooper's dream.
3: So like an extension of that meta moment that um, they have with Ferrer in the, in the office where he says, tell us what she's doing right now. And then of course the movie tells us what she's doing right I now. I think so.
2: Well, I, I think whenever you're talking about David Lynch, the idea that any part of it could possibly be a dream is never an idea you can discount altogether. I mean, I don't rule out that if you go back and watch everything he's ever done and take the supposed dream sequences as literal and the supposed literal sequences as dreams, I I don't know that it doesn't hold together just as well. So sure, I I think that's reasonable. Uh, All I know is we see a lot of things from the show that we heard people talking about get played out. You know, we hear quotations from Laura Palmer that other people told Dale Cooper about after she was dead that we now hear her actually saying. And it's still, to this day, and I've seen it like you a couple of times in the last couple of weeks, every time they go to Laura Palmer the first time and see her walking down the sidewalk, every time I see Laura Palmer alive, it sends chills up my spine every time. It's still Weird to me to this day. So the idea that he's dreaming all of this, yeah, I, I don't, I don't rule that out at all.
3: Angles, uh, who co-wrote the movie with uh, Lynch, right, said that he thought that Twin Peaks worked because it was a TV show about free-floating guilt, uh, which to me is like the community having free-floating guilt about how badly they all failed this person, this you know beautiful innocent uh, seeming young girl in, in Laura Palmer. And so I, I, I feel much the same in those scenes, Kyle. And I think that that's, that's kind of the emotion that Angles uh, is getting Yeah, at. I don't think he does
1: it. Um, I had put it on the list of things to talk about, but I don't even want to talk about it because I think it's so straightforward. Uh, I don't know why I put it on the list earlier. It was the white horse. But clearly the white horse, if I think, only shows up two times, and it's right before Maddie dies – and right before war is going to die. So that's not that hard to figure out unless we want to talk about why is it a white horse.
2: And and this may be my overly literal brain. I always interpreted that as a drug reference with, with what Laura was into uh, in the background. And I, I just assumed that that's what that meant. But again, that's probably way too literal for it to be possibly true.
3: Well, and also it's the wrong kind of drug.
2: So, Fair enough. No, right? That is yeah. true. That is true. Yeah.
3: Yeah, as a as a teenager watching this, I was certain it was a drug reference too. And now I am older and have seen more of the world, and I rewatched it. And sorry, I'm not try- I'm not trying to be condescending, pal. But no, I rewatched it last night, and I was like, "Oh my God, she's into uppers. It's not that's not right at all, right?" I was right. I,
1: I Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't know her. She did receive a pony and a secret diary, but it was chestnut covered colored I think. So uh, that's not the horse that we're looking at.
3: Okay, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go back to. Actually, wait. I'm gonna pour myself a little more coffee, and then I'm ready to go back to them. Well, the I mean, the other option was just not get the coffee, right? Not make the noise at all is the other oh,
2: option. Oh no, no. This is a David Lynch podcast. No, I mean, not not getting coffee. coffee. That's not that's not in the list of options. It would be it would be truly terrible. It would be okay. wrong. Yeah.
3: It would it would be deeply wrong. I even had um, yogurt with the like cherry pie filling on it, just to make sure I had oh, you excellent. know some cherry pie. Filling.
1: Okay, so so shall we talk about the bearded light repairman.
3: Yeah, I'm not sure if he's one person or two people either. There's a guy fixing a light in the back of the worst diner in all of the Pacific Northwest, right? The one that's the terrible funhouse mirror reflection of the double R where they have no specials at all. And then there's a guy in the other place who's wearing a really bad fake beard. And I guess I thought they might be the same person, but I wasn't sure. And again, this was approximately 2 to 3 a.m. when this was all happening last night. So I just put that on there in case you had an idea or an explanation for
1: me. Well, no, I mean, he, he, he has, there's more interaction between him and the kind of weird angry guy at the entrance of the diner and the extended scenes that were included in the most recent Blu-ray version of Fire Walk With Me. And I think in the original movie, he gives a thumbs up. But in the extended scene, he doesn't give a thumbs up in response to the question about, you know, how's it going about that light? But who the hell brings an electrician to their business to fix a lamp?
3: Using what appears to be what, like an arc welder or something. <laughs> exactly. I don't know that we're going to get
1: a good explanation of that one.
3: So, is he in the other place, though? Is the man with the beard in the other place that electrician, or is that a different individual? Oh, you mean
1: you mean the guy with the big Rasputin yeah. beard? Oh, I don't know. That's a good. I didn't. I I I did didn't even occur to me that that's what you were talking about because his beard is so much more outlandish than. The little beard with the electrician. Yeah, well.
3: and and Faker, but there, there's a bunch of characters who are supposed to mirror each other anyway, right? In Fire Walk with Me, so you have the new Donna on Molly, and you have chris isaac who i guess was meant to be agent cooper right they cast isaac because kyle mclaughlin wasn't going to come back and then mclaughlin was available and so then you have both of them uh so it wouldn't surprise me if lynch decided that he was going to have a slightly different take on that same symbolic figure in the other place or just through slapped a beard on somebody but uh i have no idea if that's intentional yeah
2: i have to think it is i mean there's so much doubling there's so many mirror images there's so many duplicates and doppelgangers spread throughout the whole thing that I, I can't imagine that that's coincidental. I mean, I, I have to think that for everybody, actually, it would be weirder if there was a character that you couldn't identify a for. That would be stranger than being able to link this guy with that guy. I mean, there's got to be someone on the other side for everyone. And if you've made that one connection, well, that's that's two fewer people that we have to explain. I like it. I'm satisfied with that explanation.
3: So, does he or any of these other individuals in the other place augur something specific for season three for any of you?
1: The meetings above the convenience store that we saw we seem to have seen one of those meetings and your question is are we going to is that 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 group that attended that meeting is that going to
3: matter
2: in season three i don't know
3: well and is that the same as the group assembled in the other place by the end of sort of all of this
2: surely some of them are going to matter whether we're actually going to see the whole group gathered back together again i don't know but you know we have these these recurring motifs these recurring figures you know these people who show up in really weird ways that you know we we finally figured out that the giant was really the you know world's oldest most decrepit waiter. Um, everybody's somebody. Everybody's going to show up somehow, even if you don't recognize them when you first see them.
3: Right, and maybe Mike's function, uh, Mike the Mike Gerard, Philip Gerard, who is also Mike right? Um, so it was to distinguish him from Mike of Mike and Bobby or any of the other Mikes, right? Uh, so h- maybe his function is to be the guy who tries to foil all of this from repeating, tries to stop the chain of events from repeating down through the generations. So he shows up in Firewalk with me and screams at Leland Palmer extensively. And I think he's screaming, the thread will be torn over and over again. So I... I- Maybe the idea is that whereas Bob and his ilk are out to just visit the same kinds of pain and suffering and Garmin and future generations, Mike's goal is is the contrary, to uh, either convene a coalition of people that can stop it or to uh, infiltrate this world from the inside and uh,
2: snuff it out. I I think that makes sense. I mean, if you're serious enough about your commitment that you take your entire arm off, uh, I'd say that uh, that you're pretty dedicated to the cause and and the idea of the thread being torn, particularly whenever we see people passing through to the other side, there's always, you know, these burgundy curtains that appear so that people are are going through what appear to be actual draperies, things actually made of cloth. Uh, You've got a double meaning there to tearing the thread. You've got the curtain separating us from the black lodge and then you've got literally the common thread that is running through all of these people's lives. I, I mean, I think you're I think you're spot on on that, Ken.
1: Thanks. I completely agree, but I would I would note that it was not his arm, it was his host's arm. Well, okay, friend. fair enough. Fair. So, enough, you right. know, he's still got to deal with the inconvenience. He's never going to be without. But no, I I I agree with that and it makes a lot of sense that that's essentially what he's doing in Firewalk with me by throwing the ring into the train car. He prevents Bob from being able to possess Laura and, you know, create a whole another generational cycle of abuse and brutality and pain and sorrow.
2: So we're agreed then this is going to be uh, an upbeat, happy, uh, positive season three then. Is that what you're predicting, Jared? <laughs> <laughs> That's right.
1: <coughs> That's right. It's all—we're all done. Okay, so Ken, what do you think could be something to be concerned about in season three?
3: Well, I think we alluded to it earlier with the brief discussion of, of Inland Empire. My thought about this is just that this is a very different David Lynch now, this many years later. And he being with an aesthetic and in a mode that's evolved quite a ways from what he was doing when he did Twin Peaks. And you can think that that mode is better or worse. You can think it's for good or for But either way, he's now divorced from... Really, any need to produce commercial films, and Inland Empire is a really good example of that to me. I, I love it. I think it's delightful, but it has this sort of film of porniness over it. It's it's very sort of amateur looking in a way that is that is intentional, and it's and it's creepy and it's it's weird, and it got an insanely good performance by Laura Dern. But it also has this kind of Harmony Korean sort of aesthetic about it, where I could see somebody. Say, saying this is terrific to watch 10 minutes at a time, but excruciating to watch at full length. And, uh, you know, my wife, who loves Twin Peaks, for example, finds it completely abhorrent and will never watch it again. You know, I I do think there is a possibility that the David Lynch that is coming back to this world of Twin Peaks that he created uh, may be interested in presenting it in a way that will be very different looking to us and may not include some of the things we liked about it originally, aesthetically or, or character wise, just because he is now... On some other shit, and uh, Showtime's going to give him the leeway to do uh, mostly whatever he wants. That's this is my feeling and my concern. To the extent I have any concern, that's not just the usual sort of reboot or coming back to something after this many years type of concern.
2: Well, and I think we do have to be concerned with that to some extent. I mean, again, anything you're coming back to 25 years later, uh, everyone is going to be in a different place. The the uh, the writers, the actors, the directors, directors anyone who's involved in any production after that long a period of time is is going to be in a very different place and the characters themselves have to be in a different place even though we do have a setup with uh, firewalk with me that that does lend itself to coming back to it specifically 25 years later that wasn't intended but it, it couldn't have been planned any better than it was to work out the way it will um, the the reasons I'm not Overly concerned about that, although I completely recognize the the valid point Ken is making. Uh, number one, Mark Frost is going to be involved. Uh, I think he's going to give it a, a certain degree of grounding uh, that Lynch, purely on his own, doesn't necessarily have. Uh, Secondly, uh, and I'm kind of ashamed to say that I bought the gold box edition of Twin Peaks because it was basically what I already had just in the gold box, but uh, there is a part uh, that was filmed more recently with David Lynch, uh, Kyle McLaughlin, and Machen Amick discussing Twin Peaks from the perspective of 15 or 20 years later, and David Lynch ends that discussion by saying, I love Twin Peaks and its world, and and there is a real affection uh, for that place and that world and those characters, so I I don't think he's going to do anything that's going to take them too far afield uh, from the people that they were. Dale Cooper is still going to be Dale Cooper, even if it's 25 years later. Uh, And the other thing is, when we were first seeing this come to fruition, uh, and David Lynch first really thought about the idea of doing a television show, but doing it on Showtime, he said he didn't really have that thought of, oh, hey, we're on Showtime, so I can do this, I can do that. You know, he talked about it as being the story evolving organically and just going the places that it went. Uh, now, very very well may be the case that Ken's absolutely right that the places the story took him were uh, some very odd, very different places. You know, you never know when he's going to walk out of a studio and put his head on a warm car roof and, boom, the Red Room sequence is going to come to him full-blown. Uh, but you've ultimately got a lot of connecting threads that tie this back. So, yeah, it's going to go in some new directions. Yeah, it's going to go to some new places. Frankly, we wouldn't want it to just be a recap of what we've already seen because we've already seen that done about as well as it can be done. Uh, but I think with with the connections that we've got there, he's going to go some new places, but he's going to respect these characters, and I think we're going to see something that's close enough what we're familiar with that I don't think is going to drive people away who loved Twin Peaks 25 years ago.
3: I think that's true, and I think there's a a lot of great points there. Um, But I also think it's true that sometimes the way a creator loves something is not the same as the way fans love something. And certainly it's better to have Lynch back doing this than all other alternatives. I'm sure we wouldn't be here doing this if we didn't all agree about that. Right. If somebody were to hand over this property to somebody right. else and tell them recapture the magic of season one, Twin Peaks without being David Lynch, right? do do some sort of carbon copy or facsimile of it. I think we'd all be sort of grossed out. So that's certainly a bad alternative. Uh, but um I also think that the the Lynch that is bringing us this now might have a very different conception of what these characters are uh, good for or what we love about them or even what we love about Twin Peaks originally than we do. He, you know, he's, he's in a different place now, but he may also have a different relationship to the content. So I totally believe that he loves Twin Peaks and its world, and I totally believe that we love Twin Peaks and its world. But sometimes you know, the, the creator of a work is trying to do something very different than uh, the fans end up getting from it and I think in particular about things like uh, The Godfather where Coppola had this idea that he was making an anti-mob movie and everybody else who watched it had this idea that it made being in the mob seem really cool (laughs) or um, uh, David Chase who in another mob example made uh, The Sopranos and had this character that he looked at as a psychopath, a charming psychopath or sociopath uh, as his protagonist and people liked Tony Soprano so much and Chase was so revolted by that that season by season he kept making him worse, he kept making him more of a... in order to drill into our, the viewer's, thick skulls that this guy is not a guy you should root for. You shouldn't like this guy. He's terrible, right? Um, and it doesn't mean that we're wrong or he's wrong. It just means that we have a different relationship or that the um, art is bad. It just means that we have a different relationship to the art that the creator does. And uh, the, the guy who made uh, Donnie Darko is another really good example. Like He apparently uh, thought everything that we liked about Donnie Darko was bad because his director's cut of the movie is considerably worse in all respects and his subsequent films have been just awful. So I, I think that it's, uh, it's fair to question whether the f- David Lynch's favorite things about Peaks are our favorite things about Twin Peaks, though I certainly have much more confidence uh, in, in him than I would in, in another creator. There's just been so much time in between for his, athet- his aesthetic to evolve and for us to remember things in a very specific kind of nostalgic way.
2: So, so, Ken, surely you're not suggesting that you think that when Alan Moore did Watchmen that he wasn't trying to send the message that uh, every, every superhero comic book for the next 30 years should be based on guys like Rorschach and The Comedian and they should all be crazy psychopaths and we should celebrate that. You're not suggesting he didn't want that, do you?
3: <laughs> I'm, I'm suggesting that uh, he didn't want that <laughs> and also that uh, he was trying to warn us all that any film adaptation of The Watchmen would be absolute garbage.
2: Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm with you there, Ken. Thanks.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I would say I'd agree with everything you guys said, except that Ken, you were absolutely dead wrong about Southland Tales. Uh, single probably one of the greatest films seen. of our generation, uh, but we're going to move on. <laughs> and, you know, and, and this, and this from someone who described himself as my number one alien Prometheus defender, which, you know, uh, having makes just, your path a strange and difficult one, Ken. Um, but and one that we should probably have a, another podcast about.
3: I know, I know. But having just seen Alien Covenant two nights ago, I have lost my ability to defend Ridley Scott for quite some time. I can no longer defend Prometheus because Covenant was so bad. I'm sorry. I wish I could.
1: Yeah, I think I think he may be one of the most overrated overrated directors out there. I mean, Alien's great. <laughs> yeah, you know, Alien's great. I don't know what else you can say. <laughs>
3: That's that actually still hurts. That I I thought I couldn't defend Ridley, but that still hurts now. I feel I feel I feel pangs of uh, of sorrow at that. I'm filled with Bosia.
1: I mean, Blade Runner's okay. Oh, well, I don't know. We'll see. Well, I want to move on and ask, since we do know who's going to be on the cast of the next season of Twin Peaks, kind of talk about that for a minute and forget about what David Lynch is going to do with these characters. But wh- how do you guys feel about? The new season. And who are you most looking forward to seeing? Uh, who are you least looking forward to seeing? And, you know, what, what are your thoughts generally on on the cast uh, from what we know about it? And I'll start with Kyle.
2: Well, I mean, obviously, like everybody, I'm looking forward to seeing Dale Cooper. I'm looking forward to seeing Gordon Cole. Uh, you know, the 23 year old in me who watched the show originally is looking forward to Machen Amick and Sherilyn Finn for entirely the wrong reasons. Um, to me, it's intriguing to see that we've got some some relatively minor characters like Ronette Pulaski and Denise Bryson coming back into the picture. Uh, I, I think the most regrettable omissions from my standpoint, uh, and again, not for the, the reason that I was talking about Sherilyn Finn a minute ago, is is uh, Heather Graham not being back, or at least according to what we've seen, not being back as as Annie Blackburn. Simply because you've got that central closing question of how's Annie uh, you've got the cameo in Firewalk With Me, where she talks about Dale being in the Black Lodge and, and really ties it all together. And, and she's in many ways, if you'll pardon my use of this term, the linchpin of, of what's going to be happening. So I, I don't really know how you can not have Annie in it. And if she's not in it, that suggests to me that she's met with some truly horrible end. Uh, I'm also going to miss Michael Antkeen, uh, just because you, yeah. you had that Holmes-Watson dynamic between Cooper and Harry uh, that I think is going to be missed. Uh, the least regrettable omission from my standpoint is is Laura Flynn Boyle. Uh, you know, she begged off a fire walk with me and was replaced with Maura Kelly. And, and I'm just wondering, you know, what is her deal? What does she have going on that's better than than going back and doing Twin Peaks again. And, and really, you know, we've got uh, Alicia Witt, who was terrific as Wendy Crow in Justified. She's coming back. And so from my standpoint, you know, who needs Laura Flynn Boyle? We've got the better Hayward daughter anyway.
3: Yeah, I, I love Alicia Witt. Uh, I'm not certain she can act. And this this distresses <laughs> me. Uh, I I feel a similar way about Machen. And uh, I, I don't know how to have the conversation about most uh, characters we most like to see again without talking about how uh, it seems that Twin Peaks has really shaped my sexuality as a person. I feel <laughs> like uh, Kyle started to get there with uh, with the idea that the 23-year-old in him uh, is excited to see these people again. But I, I really feel like most of the people I've been attracted to my entire life are in some way like Sherilyn Fenn or uh, Um Like, I, I really yeah. think... Either Lynch and I have sort of the same taste in women, or watching Twin Peaks during formative years caused Lynch's uh, taste in women to become mine, Uh, and uh, I'm not really sure how to deal with that, nor am I sure how to deal with the fact that, skipping ahead a little bit some of the people in this giant new cast are people that I have been gaga over for years, and so I don't I don't know what Lynch is trying to do to me, um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I adore Sherilyn. She hasn't apparently got anything to do. I'm not terribly ashamed to admit that I'm in a couple of Facebook groups that are dedicated to Sherilyn Fenn. They are very excited <laughs> to see that she is working. So, so is, I assume, Sherilyn. Uh, I, I should probably send her a note uh, saying that I'm excited for her and asking if she'll sign my uh, VHS copy of a terrible full moon video direct-to-video horror movie I bought um, in the 90s because she starred in it. Um, But yeah, I I think she's great. Uh, The thing with Machen is I'm not sure she can act either. Uh, she's been in a bunch of stuff since uh, Twin Peaks, and most of it not good. She's got a bit part in a, in a Gilmore Girls episode that was supposed to be like a backdoor pilot, and she's real weird in it. Um, she, uh, no, sorry. Sherilyn Fenn has the bit part in the backdoor pilot. Machen has a recurring role, um, and she's real shaky acting-wise. And she's in Riverdale right now as the very evil Alice Cooper, Betty Cooper's mom, and is not very compelling to watch. So I don't know if it's that they keep casting her in these weird sort of antagonist roles. Um, oh, and she was a femme fatale – she was a cougar in um, Gossip Girl also, uh, again, sort of woodenly. So I don't know. I, 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 I like her, and I have a lot of um, affection for Shelley Johnson, the character. I'm just worried that her performance is going to be not very good. Uh,
2: sorry, this went a lot of places. Well, at least it didn't go to two moon Junction. so uh, so you're, you're okay there. <laughs>
1: I'm curious about what exactly did michael j. anderson the the little man from another play, the man from another place, like what did he want that they wouldn't give him uh I, you know as I recall, he posted some stuff on Twitter about how he was offended that they didn't offer him enough money or something, and that's really too bad because uh <clears throat> he's actually a pretty good actor. Um, I only know this from the h b o series Carnival, uh which I would highly recommend to everybody who likes Twin Peaks. I, I didn't watch it for years and years and years because I knew nothing about it. All I knew is it was some like arty thing about a carnival on HBO. And I said, I don't want to watch that, but it turned out that it's actually a really, really good and compelling show that got cut off before it had a chance to finish even earlier than Deadwood did. Uh, another you know, great show that I, I love dearly. Um, you know, and there are a lot, there's a huge number of new cast members, you know, all, many of which are worth talking about. I think, um, you know, Monica Bellucci, Jim Belushi, Jim Belushi and Twin Peaks. I, I just can't, I don't like we Are what? we sure that's not what? just
3: like a, like a typo thing or like a miscommunication where like uh, Lynch was like, where, no, where Lynch was like, get me Bellucci, get me Bellucci. Right. And then they got him Jim Belushi. He was like, well, he's here. Like, uh, like Bob ending up in the shot. Right. He was trying to get Monica Bellucci, but the PA heard him wrong or the casting person heard him wrong. And we ended up with Jim Belushi.
2: Yeah, I actually have a theory about, about some of these folks that, that I'm, I'm starting to see a, a pattern. And, and again, I, I need to understand that most of the time, my pattern-seeking brain is finding things in David Lynch that David Lynch had, had absolutely no intention of putting there. Uh, but, you know, I, what I keep going back to is you got, you got David Bowie in Firewalk With Me. You know, you've got Richard Pryor in Lost Highway. Um, and, and we're seeing in this cast list, we got Jim, uh, Jim Belushi, who, frankly, we only know about because he's John Belushi's brother. We've got Richard Chamberlain from The Thorn Birds. We've got Grant Goodeve, who played the oldest son on Eight Is Enough. We've got Lauren Tewes, Julie, your cruise director from The Love Boat. And then we've got Robert Forster who we know from the, uh, from the film Jackie Brown, which of course was Quentin Tarantino's homage to the 70s black exploitation films. We've got Michael Cera from Arrested Development, a show that you simply cannot get the best jokes in if you didn't grow up watching Happy Days. So, you know, we're talking about these, uh, going back and watching this on VHS tapes, we're talking about David Lynch being 25 years further in the future. I, I think he's doubling down on the 70s references. I think he's going back to Betamax. He's, he's going back to not 25 years ago. He's going back to 40 years ago and bringing in all these people who remind us of the 1970s. And, and I don't know where he's going with that. I don't know what he's doing with that. But how else do you come up with this particular cast list? Who went out and found Grant Goodeve and Lauren Tuise for crying out loud? I mean, that's got to be a deliberate effort to go and get those people just because of what we recognize them from so that we'll see them and go, is that Julie the cruise director from The Love Boat? That's the only possible reason you go get her.
1: You know, that's an interesting point. That's really interesting, Kyle, because when you think about the show, it's already pretty much stuck in the 50s in the first place. Sure. There, there's there, there's nobody who drives a car that was made after 1960, for the most part. Right. You turn on the radio and you're hearing rockabilly that you would not be able to hear except for like on a certain hour of the week on a college radio station these days. Right. Uh, it, it, so much of the show's aesthetic is kind of in the sort of notion of the 50s so yeah it's it's really fascinating to think that if he's moving the show 25 years into the future but you know in actuality there are real dates the if that the show is technically contemporary but that it's setting up for this series which is 25 years in the future to have a kind of you know 70s feel to it uh that that's a fascinating idea
2: yeah Yeah, I hadn't thought about it from that angle, but you're right. Uh, I mean, you've you've got Cooper talking about, you know, Twin Peaks is a place where a yellow light still means slow down instead of speed up. So yeah, if you're thinking about it from in their mindset, not literally in the time frame it takes place but in their mindset if they're there in the 50s then yeah we're coming back 25 years later and it's you know it's 1975 it's it's you know it's Saturday night live is just debuting and and uh we've just come through vietnam and watergate and uh and that's that's the world he drops us down in and frankly you know given contemporary events without getting too terribly political about it uh that's sort of an interesting place for for david lynch to to pick things up still so- struggling with
3: the idea that there's a character on a TV show called Julie the Cruise direct, um, as I was not going to watch the when especially given that Lynch's favorite new-agey singer ever is Julie Cruise, right, who has a surprisingly long performance
2: in Fire Walk with me. Whoa, well, I had never thought about that. I just had assumed Isaac the Bartender wasn't still available. But, but Ken, you definitely need to go and watch a very, very little bit of Love Boat. And I mean a very little bit. Just go pull one episode and you will have gotten everything there is to get. But, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's who Lauren Twees is. And if you haven't heard of her for that, you haven't heard of her because she certainly has never done anything else. You are correct in that I have never heard of her at all.
1: Right. It was a heavily in syndication when I was a, a kid. So I remember watching it. Uh, occasionally on TV I'm, I'm excited about Jennifer Jason Lee uh, being in just about anything but you know in Twin Peaks that's pretty exciting Trent reznor <laughs> right right and you know Tim Tim Roth uh, that's a really I think that there are people on this list who are just dying to get on the show otherwise I can't really explain it
3: and and people on this list who have died can we can we talk about dead that's characters true. and dead yeah, actors for a moment yeah, absolutely. Because there are a number of people here playing characters who died, right? So I assume they're going to appear only in flashback. And then, you know, I was going to make a joke as we were putting this together about how Jack Nance isn't going to be here for obvious reasons. Uh, and then I see that other people who have died are in the cast. So Catherine Coulson is here. I'm confident that she died in 2015. So if she can make it back to be in the show, I don't see why Jack can't, frankly. It <laughs> seems like a slight.
2: Well, we've got uh, uh, Warren Frost, you know, who played Doc Hayward, and who, by the way, I didn't know until like three weeks ago was Mark Frost's dad. I had never known that before, but Warren Frost passed away during the filming of it. Miguel Ferrer obviously did, and both of them supposedly had, had footage uh, in the can before they passed away. So we're going to have characters that have been dead for a long time coming back in the show, and we're going to have actors who are now deceased— who are going to be appearing uh, in in scenes that were filmed earlier uh, that didn't air until after they passed away? So it's it's just a uh, it's a really weird relationship to to the line between life and death, uh, which may in fact be the most Lynchian thing ever.
3: How is he going to pull it off? It it seems like it's going to be awfully obvious when people are appearing in footage that was filmed in a very different way for the old series, right? Surely he doesn't have access to like the Rogue One. CGI technology.
1: No, I mean it just it just depends on how much he had filmed at the time that they passed away.
2: Right. Yeah. What's going to be interesting is seeing how you transition out of that. That you know, obviously, none of these people uh, film these scenes knowing that they were going to die. I mean, I think back to uh, what Mark Frost, uh, another show, Mark Frost was famous for in Hill Street Blues where Michael Conrad, who played uh, Sergeant Estherhouse on the show, he was diagnosed with cancer, and and they knew he was fighting a losing battle against cancer. And so he went from appearing in every episode throughout the episode to just doing the morning roll call scene. And they did an explanation for that, that he was going to spend his days working with cadets at the police academy. And they they really had that prepared and set up, knowing that he was going to pass away during, during the show's run, regrettably, but being prepared to deal with it. Here, they didn't have this. you know. They, they filmed whatever scenes they filmed with Warren Frost, and then Warren Frost went home, and they thought they were going to get him back for whatever scenes they needed to film, presumably. Certainly Miguel Ferrer, they would have had to have thought that. So they wouldn't have filmed these as final farewells from Albert Rosenfeld and Doc Hayward. And so what I'm less interested in... Uh, is is how it's going to be used in the moment as how it's going to be explained afterward. I mean, they could have just passed away in the interim, the character could have, and they could just be off the show. But if you filmed fairly contemporary footage, and then they just walk off set and they're never heard from again, how is that going to be woven into what happens?
3: Yeah. Is, is the character that Harry Dean Stanton is playing, his character from Fire Walk With Me, Carl Rod, is that the trailer park owner? I believe that's right, yeah. I love Harry Dean. He's now ninety, by the way. Um, so uh, good, good for him for for uh, for making it out. Um, Duchovny is is reprising his role um, from the from the second season. I feel like that performance and its treatment of uh, certain issues has aged extremely poorly. This worries me.
2: Well, maybe that's one of the things he's he's upgraded. You know, maybe maybe now you you get. Uh, I mean, certainly you've got uh, you know. Tommy Hawk Hill, where you've got a, a, a pretty uh, offensive reference just in the nickname. Um, you know, hopefully that is, is going to be upgraded a little bit better. Certainly there was a, an effort in uh, The Secret History of Twin Peaks to, uh, to have Hawk himself comment on having been given the name in high school and having resented and not liked the nickname. So so hopefully the intervening years have—the reflections, uh, the, the changes in attitude in the interim will be reflected in the new show, one would hope. Or David Lynch may just make fun of everybody the way he always does. There's that, too.
3: Does, does anybody have residual affection for any Hurley, Nadine, Ed, or James? <laughs>
2: No, I, I would do fine without any Hurleys in the, uh, in the mix.
3: Ed, if any, would be, would be the one I would, uh, sure. I would refer. But man, James, James Hurley, like, yeah. Who, who is, is watching? watching go ahead. Who, who watches Twin Peaks and comes away with it with the notion that uh, James Hurley is their favorite character, right? It's zero people over the course of uh, history.
2: Yeah, really, once you've got the silent drape runner perfected, uh, you, you've, you've exhausted all the storytelling potential of the Hurley family.
3: The two contenders for worst storyline in the down period of season two are Noir James Hurley and Nadine the cheerleader. And I think the two of you referenced the, the Noir James Hurley as uh, the runaway candidate for that position in uh, the last episode. But to me, it's, it's Nadine the cheerleader. It's so endless, that plot line.
1: What does redeem... Uh, the Nadine story in season two are the shots of Big Ed's reactions to her, uh, his his face, uh, his utter terror. I I enjoy that part of the the subplot, even though it does not redeem it.
3: Yeah, it has sort of a Jim in the office uh, quality to it. I'll give you that.
1: Okay, so I think we're nearly done with episode zero. We're all really really excited tomorrow night, from the time of this recording, to be watching Showtime and to see. The first two episodes of season three, we will get this episode up as soon as we can. And then we're all set to record next Saturday so that everyone can listen to and sort of get their own recap before the episodes one and two of Twin Peaks season three. A couple random thoughts that I, I discovered this week. I looked it up. There is no deer meadow in Oregon. However, there does appear to be a very poorly rated assisted living facility by that name in Sheridan, Oregon, uh, if anybody was interested. This is just what I can tell from the internet. I'm just reporting what people said about the facility. Perhaps it's quite nice. I don't know. You know, I've been reading the Access Guide to the Town of Twin Peaks, a really, truly bizarre book that... Came out about the same time as the second season that talks about the sort of history of the town as if you were, you know, you go to London and got an access guide to London or New York or Chicago with lots of little tidbits about the town's history. And it is really bizarre, both for its multiple references to theosophy and for passages like this. It talks about Dominic Renault who was a fur trader who wandered into Washington in the early 1800s. And uh, I'm going to read from the access guide here. Diary fragments indicate Renault was a gloomy man given to extended and severe depressions from which he emerged, apparently believing he'd been talking with animals. A fragment of his trading post still exists, but no one knows what became of Renault. Most likely, as Targaski, a writer who wrote a biography about fur traders uh, from France, suggests Renault mated with owls, his anguished voice becoming a part of them in the endless and misty forests. No explanation as to how uh, this ancestor of Jacques and Jean ended up mating with owls, but I recommend picking up the book just for references like that.
3: I was going to say, no explanation as to how that came to pass, or no uh, explanation as to how it happened logistically. Uh, I, I assume neither. I assume Neither.
1: <laughs> neither. Okay. Neither. It just, it just, it, it's just there by itself with that just moves on to the next topic. It's great.
2: All right. Anything else? I would just say the only explanation you need of that is, is that the owls are in fact not what they seem.
1: All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Wrapped in Podcast. This is the end of episode zero. Uh, I want to thank Kyle and Ken for participating. I think we've had a few more technical glitches this week than last week. Uh, I assume it has something to do with electricity and the faint smell of burning oil that I can uh, detect in this room. Anyway, have a good week, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye
0: dozy dots and dozy-dotes and, and little lambsy-divey. <clears throat> And now to bring you these tender words of love, those three talented youngsters, Sam Quentin and his quail. Mercy toats and dozy toats and little lambsy divey, a kiddly divey too, wouldn't you? Yes, merci toats and dozy toats and little lambsy divey, a kiddly divey too, wouldn't you? If the words sound queer and funny to your ear, A little bit jumbled and jivey, sing, uh, mares eat oats, and does eat oats, and little lambs eat ivy. Oh, Mercy eat and dozy dots and little lambs eat ivy. a kiddly-divey-doo, wouldn't you? A kiddly-divey-doo, wouldn't you? go, and does go, and little lambs go, a kiddly-divey too, wouldn't you? Mares go, and does go, and little lambs go, a kiddly-divey too, wouldn't you? If the words sound queer, and funny to your ear, a little bit jumbled that child. mares eat oats, and doves eat oats, and little lambs eat ivy. Mares go, and doves go, and little lambs go, a kiddly-divey-too, wouldn't you? A kiddly-kiddly-kiddly-kiddly-kiddly-kiddly-divey-too.